0: Christians, just like any other human being, experience the emotional roller coaster that accompanies many of life's seasons. We just celebrated one of the high Christian holy days, holidays, as we considered during Easter the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection, the physical, bodily, authentically true resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the heart of the Christian faith. You cannot call yourself a Christian and not genuinely believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Born of a virgin, lived some 2,000 years ago, perfectly obeyed the law of God in a way that no other human being has ever done, was crucified, died as a substitute for the sins of the people, was physically buried indicating that those around him knew that he was actually dead, but then rose again from the dead, not as a ghost or apparition that people saw in their sleeps, sleep, but physically rose again from the dead, flesh and bone, walking with others, talking with others, appearing to nearly 500 people at one time, declaring that he'd been given authority over heaven and earth, commissioning his people to make disciples on his behalf. So they were commanded. And so on the basis of his resurrection from the dead, a clear indication that his substitutionary sacrifice was accepted by God on the basis of his resurrection. The people of God went forth to proclaim the truth of the gospel. It is on the basis of the resurrection that any of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ stand today. Any of us worship the true and living God, enjoy fellowship with him and with one another, have hope for the future. To be able to set aside a time specifically to celebrate that truth is a special time. It is a blessed time. As I've said many times before, every Sunday we have the opportunity to celebrate the resurrection. Jesus rose on the third day, a fact that the church was so conscious of that they took to meeting on the third day after Friday, which is Sunday, in order to commemorate that truth. And so we gather every Sunday in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We gather to celebrate him, to rejoice in him, to hear from him, to sing of him, to pray to him, to encourage one another in him. It is indeed a joyous time for the people of God to gather together, to be able to do this every Sunday morning in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But not every day is Easter. Not every day is the Lord's Day. Not every season is the Easter season. Not every season holds joy-filled remembrance, joy-filled reminders, joy-filled expectations. The roller coaster at times will hit low points on the track. The roller coaster of life will at times be filled with sorrow. The roller coaster at life will be filled with lamenting. It'll be filled with pain at times, not exaltation, but anxiety. At times, our seasons of life will be filled with difficulty, discouragement, perhaps even danger. The question is, how do we respond in times like that? How do we respond to life in times like that? If we can find comfort in anything, we can find comfort in knowing that the Lord knows us intimately. He knows us so intimately that he knows that even though we have these constant reminders of his goodness, his grace, his faithful love, his mercy and compassion, even though we have these constant reminders, this weekly reminder of his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do still at times suffer discouragement. And when needed, he meets us there. Of all the texts in the word of God, there is perhaps none better to see that the Lord understands the roller coaster of emotions that we encounter in life that is common among his people. To see that the Lord understands our plight, that he still accepts us in spite of our fears. There's no better text to find encouragement in the midst of those seasons than in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is considered by some the songbook of the church church. It is indeed a collection of prayers and praises to the true and living God from the perspective of weak, frail, struggling, needy, sometimes sinful humanity, and particularly those who have believed in him, those who have trusted in him, those who relate to him by means of the covenant that he has with his people by virtue of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Well, this morning and for a number of weeks, we will revisit the Psalms And we'll consider what encouragement we might draw from them to encourage our worship of the true and living God throughout the various seasons of life that we encounter. This morning, we will look at Psalm 27. This psalm is born out of adversity, and its aim is to encourage the people of God to look to him in times of adversity. It is a reminder for the people of God to trust in the Lord, who is both our help and our hope in times of adversity. Turn with me to the book of Psalms, if you haven't. Again, we're going to be in Psalm 27. I'll read it for you this morning. We'll pray, and then we'll look at it in more detail. Psalm 27 is a psalm of David, and I'll read starting at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother, father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Father, again, we thank you for this day, this opportunity we have to come before your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning, that you would remove any distractions from our thoughts that you would give us a listening heart to hear from you this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this psalm is an exhortation to trust in the Lord in midst of adversity. We are to trust in the Lord because he is our help. We see that in verses 1 through 6. And we are to trust in the Lord because he is our hope. We see that in verses 7 through 14. The Lord is our help and he is our hope. Well, let's look at that first point. In verses 1 through 6, that in times of adversity, we are to trust in the Lord because he is our help. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. And make melody to the Lord. One of the greatest differences between poetry and prose is that poetry relies significantly on simile, metaphor, comparisons to communicate truth. Prose, such as a common letter written from the apostle to the church, we just finished a series in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, for example. Prose may easily communicate the truth that God is a help to his people in the midst of adversity, but poetry communicates that same truth in a different and sometimes more compelling fashion by using comparisons with everyday things and concepts that the reader is able to feel more more easily than they would be in prose prose. I've summarized his first six verses by the statement that we are to trust in the Lord who is our help. But David communicated that truth by quite a different means as we're looking at the poetry of Psalm 27. Well, again, we are to look at the Lord, to look to the Lord in times of adversity because he is our help. And David shows us here that a believer confesses that the Lord is their help in times of adversity. Look again at verse 1. Again, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He starts with a gripping affirmation of who the Lord is to him. One of the things that I've encouraged our Bible study crew to consider as we studied the psalm on Wednesday evening some time ago I said at that time that when you're reading through the Bible, even if you cannot understand the full message of a text, one of the easiest and simplest things that you can do is to consider the question, what does it say about who God is? What does it say about who the Lord is? Just identify those truths and chew on those truths for a while. Well, that's what David does here. He affirms four things about who the Lord is in verse one. First of all, he is the Lord In your Bible, this should be Lord with all uppercase letters. The term in the original is not the generic term for Lord or Master. It is a covenant name for the Lord. This is the name that was given to the children of Israel when Moses led them out of Egypt. When Moses was called by God, he asked God, who shall I say is sending me to the people? God said, you can tell them the I am has sent you. There, God is claiming self-existence. In theology, we call him the pre-existent, self-existent, uncaused cause of all things. God said to Moses that this name, the I Am, this is where we get the term Yahweh, or in some older texts, Jehovah. The I Am is his memorial name, a name that the people of God ought to remember and treasure as his special name, his name by covenant with them. In other words, David is saying here that he relates to God by means of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant that he reaffirmed with the children of Israel. David is acknowledging that he is a believer. He just put his faith in the true and living God and knows him by means of the covenant that he's made with his people. He calls upon him as the Lord. What David says about the Lord, in other words, is coming from his perspective as a believer. He's not merely a religious person, in other words. He's not merely a spiritual person. He's not one who simply goes to church on those high holy days or those special occasions. You know how the church tends to be packed on Easter, right, or Christmas. Well, a believer is one who has a persistent faith in the Lord, a faith that is a part of the fabric of who they are, and that's what David is confessing here. You can tell whether or not someone has a genuine faith in part by how they speak of the Lord. Do they speak of him as some impersonal force? Do they speak of him as a personal force, but one that is virtually equivalent to a genie in the bottle? If I rub him the right way, if I say the right kinds of things, if I do the right kinds of things, then he'll work favorably for me. If I don't, then he won't. Perhaps they treat God as some kindly old grandparent who is weak and impotent to do anything of significance, whose ways of thinking is antiquated, quaint, but old and outdated. It's the way most of the world thinks of God. Or do they speak of God as if he is a person, a person to whom they relate by means of a covenant, a person to whom they relate according to the new covenant in the blood of Jesus? Do they speak as if they are believers in the true and living God through Jesus Christ? David affirms that the one who he's speaking about, the one who he's about to describe in the rest of the words of this psalm, is none other than the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God who relates to his people by covenant. He says, This is the one who I'm referring to. He affirms, he confesses that this is the Lord. He also confirms, he confesses that he is his light. Again, verse 1, the Lord is my light. Again, Hebrew poetry communicates truth by means of comparison. God is not actually functioning as a physical light for David. That's not the point. We say sometimes that we interpret Scripture literally, but that's not exactly what we mean. A better term is perhaps that we interpret Scripture normally. We interpret it according to the normal means that one uses to interpret various kinds of literature. In other words, if we're in poetry, which the Psalms is Hebrew poetry, Then we understand that for David to say that the Lord is his light, that David is attempting to communicate truth about the Lord by means of comparison. Or what does light do? Light illuminates. Light sometimes warms. Light gives clarity in darkness or obscurity. He will speak of fear in this verse. There's almost a universal fear of the dark from a very young age. This is not the fear of experience. We haven't experienced some evil thing in The dark. Rather, it's an apprehension caused by the unknown, by traveling through an undiscovered country, by the potential of some unknown evil that may fall us, befall us. We don't want to walk about in darkness for fear of serious injury or harm. Whenever we find ourselves standing before an unfamiliar, darkened room, the first thing we look for is what? A light switch. We look for the light to which to engage the light so that we will not walk in darkness and potentially come to harm. Well, David says, the Lord, the one with whom I am related by covenant, the true and living God, he is my light. He is the one to whom I turn immediately when darkness approaches. He illuminates my path. He helps me to see and interpret things clearly. The Lord is my light. David, the believer, confessed that the Lord is his light. I wonder, do you consciously consider the Lord to be the light of your life? When you approach seasons of darkness, when you experience seasons of darkness, perhaps seasons where you're approaching the unknown, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Or you know that there's going to be difficulty tomorrow. Or perhaps you're in the midst of the difficulty now. Do you consciously consider The Lord to whom you relate through Jesus Christ as your light. David says, The Lord is my light, He is also my salvation. For David, not only is the Lord his covenant keeping God, not only is He light. He is also the embodiment of salvation. He is the savior and there is no other. Salvation is deliverance. It is to be delivered from something. The concept of New Testament salvation, the absolute deliverance from the power and penalty of sin, was a shadow in the Old Testament. It was foreshadowed through the Levitical system, a foreshadowing which the prophets envisioned through the coming of the suffering servant. In our text, the salvation that David envisions is a deliverance from danger presented by his enemies. God is the one who fights his battles. God is the one who provides deliverance from death for God, from God alone comes salvation. Of course, our greatest enemies, death and sin are rendered powerless, ultimately through the salvation that we experience by faith in Jesus Christ. And again, on account of his resurrection from the dead, we have this great celebration that we, salvation that we celebrate and enjoy by faith every Sunday as we gather. But David is here resting in the truth that God is his salvation the Lord the one to whom I relate by covenant the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob David says he is my light he is the one to whom I turn when there is darkness he is my salvation the one who delivers me in the face of my enemies moreover again according to verse one he is the stronghold of my life this light That which wards off darkness, this salvation, the one who provides ultimate deliverance, makes him, the Lord, the stronghold of my life. Now, a stronghold is a military term. A stronghold is a place of refuge, one to which an army, even at times an entire people, would flee in times of national distress. A stronghold is a place of defense in those times. It is fortified. It is supplied. The intention of a stronghold is to provide a place for people to flee, to essentially wait out a siege if it comes upon a city. It is the ultimate refuge for those fleeing imminent life-threatening danger. David says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. David, the believer, consciously considers the Lord, his God, as a place of defense, an ultimate refuge to flee to in times of life-threatening danger. Clearly, David is walking through a season of life that's characterized by fear. He is dealing with something or someone who causes him to be, or at least tempts him to be afraid. He uses that same term twice in this verse, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? He takes it a step further in subsequent verses. He says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes. He says, though an army encamp against me. These are very real dangers for David. Even dangers which may cause him to fear for his life. Again, the evildoers assail him to eat up his flesh. It is as if a whole army is encamped against him again this is hebrew poetry so it's not there's not an actual army sitting before him right now but it feels that way it feels as if his life is in danger it feels as if there's a whole army waging war against him in his life right now i tell you whoever came up with the theology that teaches that believers never go through difficulty that believers never suffer clearly has never actually read the bible david was a believer For that matter, we have others, Moses, who suffered, Abraham, who suffered, Jacob, who suffered. Jesus himself is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He particularly suffered by bearing the sins of his people on the cross and dying a death that he didn't personally deserve. Suffering and the effects of suffering are not only acknowledged as a part of a life of faith, but we're constantly reminded how to suffer well. David is here modeling for us how to suffer well. We do not suffer well by ignoring the pain and difficulty of whatever trial comes upon us. We do not suffer well by pretending that all is well, smiling, and saying our customary praise the Lord's and hallelujahs when we get together with God's people. We don't suffer well by withdrawing into ourselves and using our pain as an excuse to drift away from the Lord. We suffer well as believers by consciously turning our attention to the Lord in faith as the stronghold of our life in the midst of that anxiety. We flee to him. We find our confidence not in our ability to understand why, not in our ability to get a hold of the situation, but we find our confidence in the truth of who the Lord is, in his character, in his person, that he is a stronghold for our life. Look again at the text in here. Not the defeat, but the confidence of the one who believes in the Lord. He says, when, not if, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble. I do not stumble at that time. I do not fall away. They stumble. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. In other words though the fear or temptation to fear is present even though his enemies are present and actively working against him knowing that the lord is his stronghold gives him confidence they will stumble my heart shall not fear i will be confident this is not resignation to fear this is confidence in the face of danger and the potential of fear whom shall i fear when the lord is my stronghold of whom shall i be afraid when the lord is my light and my salvation Again, this is a confession of a believer. The Lord, the one to whom I related by covenant, is my light. He is my salvation. He's my stronghold. I wonder, do you, believer, again, consciously consider the Lord to be your stronghold in times of trouble? Do you consciously think of the one, him as the one to whom you should flee when there is danger? When your enemies have arisen, no matter who those enemies are, Whether it be actual people, circumstances, sickness, or even the threat of death, when your enemies have arisen, do you consciously consider that the Lord is a stronghold for you? Do you look to him as your great help in times of adversity? David in the Psalms tells us that this is a response of a believer. The believer confesses that the Lord is his help in times of adversity. Again, the response of a believer is not to know exactly why these things are happening, it's not to pretend that they're not happening. Or that they would go away only if we had enough faith. The response of a believer is not to argue that you don't deserve these difficulties. The response of a believer is to confess that the Lord is my stronghold in the midst of these things. Not only do we confess that the Lord is our help in times of adversity, but more than that, The response of a believer is to cling to the Lord as his help. Moving on in the text, look again at verses 4 through 6. We are to cling to the Lord as our help. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. In theology, we discuss the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The purpose of this doctrine is to summarize what the Bible teaches on the nature of true faith. True faith, biblical faith persists. Biblical faith abides. Biblical faith or trust, the trust of a believer in the true and living God is a continual faith. Scripture says that the righteous live by faith. There's an abiding, continual faith that persists from the moment of salvation, that initial faith act, and it continues on into eternity. True faith never fails. It never falls away. True faith never ends. Those who have true faith will never walk away. They will never fall away. They will never lose faith in God. And this is all precisely because of who God is, not because of who we are. If our salvation were up to us, We would all fall. I can say that with 100% certainty about myself. If my salvation was all about me, I know I would have fallen away years ago. But the biblical doctrine of perseverance does not place the responsibility of persisting on the believer, but rather it places the primary weight of responsibility for holding us on God himself. We read from John chapter 10 earlier. Do you remember that text where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And he says later in that same text in John chapter 10 that I hold them in my hand and no one is able to snatch them out of my my hand. And he says, my father, who is greater than all, holds them in his hand and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Jesus was underscoring the truth that those who are his are kept by him, period. And that's the confidence of the believer. That's Romans chapter 8. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That includes you. That includes me. That includes anything that might happen to us in this life. In anyone who might be an enemy, who might arise against us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing and no one. We persevere because it is God who holds us. The life that we are given, the faith that we are given by virtue of our new covenant in his blood is the kind of faith that responds to the word of God that bids us to come. And it bids us to come not only on those high and holy days when all is well, when we're at the height of our enjoyment of God, but it is the kind of faith that bids bids us to come even when we are in the depths of despair. When we're in the throes of chaos, turmoil, again, when those enemies are banging at the gates, threatening to come in, this persevering kind of faith that God gives us is a faith that clings to the Lord as our help in times of adversity. Look again at the text, in the midst of danger, this very real danger that David feels in the midst of the threat to his life, where does he desire to be? one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He desires to be close to the Lord. He wants to be where the Lord is. He prays for this. one thing I've asked. Now, this doesn't mean that he hasn't asked for other things. In a few verses, we're going to look at some other elements of his prayer, but that he calls this one thing suggests that it is of central importance to him. This is one thing that he's asked over and over again frequently of the Lord. He asked this one thing of the Lord, and he seeks after it, that he might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. He wants to be where the Lord is. This ought to be the highest aim for the believer, to be wherever the Lord is, to be in his presence, to seek his face. The house of the Lord is a poetic way referring to the tabernacle, the place where the people of God met with the Lord for worship, to perform the sacrifices of the covenant. It's where they expressed their faith in tangible ways. Again, yes, there were the high holy days, the festivals, but there were also times of regular worship. And in the midst of his trial, in the midst of his difficulty, in the midst of seemingly life-threatening danger, David says, I want to be there. I want to be where the Lord is. Time and time again, I see it, and I know you all see it too. Someone goes through difficulty, some trials, some sickness, some distress, and they simply stop showing up to the fellowship. They stop coming. Not only do they stop coming, but they usually stop seeking the Lord by means of regular personal devotions and prayers, or else their focus on regular devotions and prayers becomes intensely personal and individualistic, It becomes more about their own world, their own sphere of influence, Than the body of Christ, the gathering of God's people, all of those things tend to fade into the background. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. We know that, right? I'm not talking about those who are physically incapable of coming to the fellowship for some reason or those who have experienced some trauma and they're in the throes of intense grief. Sometimes we need time to process at those times, but that time should be short. and We should make it intentionally short. I think somehow in our minds we've convinced ourselves that it makes more sense to take time for ourselves, to have our own personal island kind of faith, just Jesus, me, and my Bible. As if that kind of faith is taught anywhere in Scripture. We just studied through the book of Ephesians. You cannot do any serious study of the book of Ephesians and escape the reality that our faith was never intended to be individualistic. It has always been about the community. It has always been about the gathering of God's people. In fact, Ephesians presents the spiritual maturity is only that which can be reached in the context of the community of believers. A community of believers who are not so concerned with themselves as much as they're concerned with one another, with serving one another, with showing up to use their gifts for one another, giving to one another, loving one another, And through the one anothering, growing into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Back to Psalm 27, David underscores why why this is so significant. He says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Look again at the text. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. There's a beauty in the Lord, a beauty that we can only gaze upon when we draw near to the Lord, not when we fall away from him. A beauty that we can only gaze upon in the context of our gathering together in the community of believers in worship. Again, that's the context of David's words here. He's not talking about being alone with God. He's talking about going to the sanctuary when they would commonly go to the sanctuary to worship, to fellowship with the Lord regularly, to gather together with God's people around God's word. There's a beauty that you can only see and experience as you draw near to the Lord in the normal course of the fellowship of believers. Again, it's not enough just to come on the holy days. A periodic kind of faith won't sustain you. We need to see that kind of beauty, the kind of beauty seen through the fellowship of God's people, particularly when we're in the throes of discouragement and danger. It is there that the Lord will, as he says in verse 5, hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. The promise, the confidence is that as we gaze upon the beauty of his temple, the beauty of our fellowship with him and his people, the beauty of nearness that we enjoy with him, as we gaze upon that beauty, that God will hide us, that he will conceal us, that he will lift us up. Again, consider the imagery. The Lord takes us into his confidence and hides us in his shelter. Imagine a bomb shelter that your neighbor has constructed in their own backyard. And you're in a town that is being bombed. You know that there is danger. You don't have a bomb shelter of your own. And so what do you do? You go to your neighbor's house because you know that your neighbor is the kind of person who will let you in. They'll draw you in. They won't turn you away. They say, come on in. And find rest find refuge this is what the lord is saying he says you need to draw near in those times of danger in those times of trial god is not willing to leave us to suffer he's not willing to leave us to be miserable in the throes of depression and discouragement he bids us to come to draw near in times of adversity And as we come and we draw near, he promises to give us shelter, to protect us, to comfort us, to shield us, even to give us joy. Look at verse 6. Now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me, and I'll offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. We tend to act as if joy is due us. We act as if we should be able to withdraw, become sullen, detached, self-centered, self-oriented, otherwise selfish in times of distress. And that somehow God owes us joy in spite of that. That's not the pathway to joy. The pathway to joy requires that we draw near to the Lord. I think there's another nugget of truth in here that's important for us to, to consider. Joy is not in the absence of pain. Sometimes we think that if we could just get out of the situation that we're in, if it would just pass, if we could just get over it, then we would have joy. Someone once said that happiness comes from happenings. I think that's an apt description. If it's happiness you seek, the emotion of happiness, that may come with the absence of pain and favorable circumstances, but it also flee the moment that pain returns. Biblical joy is a part of the fruit of the spirit. It is not based on the things that happen around you. It is inexplicably linked to the presence of God in our lives. The nearness of God is our greatest joy, our greatest good. And we can have that whether we have favorable circumstances or not. We just have to trust in the Lord. And ultimately, that trust is displayed as we draw near in times of adversity, as we draw near and gather together with the people of God. It's the joy of the reminder of God's faithfulness, as we sung this morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God my Father. Morning by morning, we see those new mercies. It is the joy of the reminders we gather together every Sunday morning and sing songs That remind us of the resurrection of jesus see what a morning gloriously bright it is a joy of reminder as we gather together and consider the rich treasure that we possess in jesus christ the one who bled and died for us it's a joy of the reminders we gather together around god's word that he is our light our salvation our stronghold you cannot find that on your own in the dark you find that when you draw near to the light you gather together with God's people. We ought to cling to the Lord as our help in times of adversity. This is how we persevere. This is, in fact, the pathway, to joy. The Lord does his greatest work of restoring to us the joy of our salvation as we draw near to him by faith, as we draw near during our normal times of fellowship with the community of believers, seeking him for the help that we need when we are at our weakest. Point number two, in times of adversity, not only do we Trust in the Lord because he is our help, but we also trust in the Lord because he is our hope. That's the rest of the passage in verses 7 through 14. Those who trust in the Lord... As their hope, show their faith by calling out to the Lord in times of adversity. Verses 7 and 9, 7 through 9. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. When David faced adversity, he prayed he didn't just whisper alone, solitary prayer; He cried aloud. Now, this is Hebrew poetry, so of course there may be a bit of embellishment in the text, but I don't think so. I think the, the purpose of him stating that he cried aloud is to indicate the earnestness of his prayer. This is not, this is not just a stub toe, right? This is not just his, his favorite television series being canceled, and he's, he's lamenting that fact. This is, he's in he's in great need. He's in significant need. And so when he's in great and significant need, he calls out to God in prayer. I ask people again and again when some difficulty or some trial or some distress comes or, I don't know, they're trying to rid themselves of some foolish habit, I ask, oh, have you prayed about it? Well, No. Well, if the Lord is your hope, (laughs) if the Lord is your stronghold, if he is your help, why haven't you prayed about it? You ought to. Prayer is an expression of that truth. It's an expression of your confidence in him. I mean, where else will we go? It's kind of like Peter said, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, David cries out. He calls aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. He's pleading to God to listen to him. Not turn away your face from me. Do not turn me away in anger. You have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me. You are the God of my salvation. Again, hear the confidence in who God is. And that's ultimately the reason why he pleads to God. He doesn't plead to God on the basis of his personal goodness. God, I've been good this week. I've done all kinds of nice things. I helped that little old lady across the street when she, you know, I helped her with her groceries You know, I gave out some things to to people on the side of the road. I I did some really good things this week, God. So, you know, can you come by and and listen to my prayers and, and answer? No, that's not the point. David says, I'm not coming to you on the basis of who I am. I'm coming to you on the basis of who you are. You are my help. You are my salvation. And on the basis of the fact that you are my help, you are my salvation. God, I'm crying out, hear me. Answer me cries out to God to hear him. He cries out to the Lord on the basis of who he is. He cries out to the Lord for guidance, which is often what we need the most in those times of difficulty. Verses 10 and 11, for my father and mother have forsaking me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Well, these verses might sound kind of harsh, but he's not coming down on his father and mother. The point is that they're not available to him. They're not there. Perhaps they've died and they've gone on to be with the Lord. But those who were closest to him and who knew him the most, they just weren't present. And sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes that's actually true. But sometimes we just feel like we're the only ones. We're alone. No one sees. No one knows. You know what exacerbates that usually? What exacerbates that in times of difficulty is the fact that we tend to, again, drift away from God and his people when God has designed his people, the fellowship of his people to be one of the main means of grace for us. And so we tend to feel like we're alone when that's not actually true. But sometimes it is true that people just aren't available for us and we can't go to them. But David says, you know what, even though there aren't other people available to me right now, I'm going to look to the Lord And I'm going to ask him for what I need the most right now, which is guidance. Lead me in a level path because of my enemies, he says. All of the things that are going on in my life, I don't need to get out of it. He's not praying for God to get out of it. I'm sure he wants to. But what he's praying for the most is that God would give him wisdom in the midst of it. That's James chapter 1. Again David cries out to the Lord as his only hope he cries out to him pleading with the Lord to hear him on the basis of the Lord's character he cries to the Lord for wisdom to respond well to the trial even to respond well to those who are enemy his enemies he will ultimately pray for deliverance verse 12 give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence and one thing I want you to see in this verse is that David is not praying, God, I pray that you would stop them from hurting me. He's praying, give me not up to my adversaries. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God and his suffering. I think this is another thing that we tend to miss when we suffer. We tend to think that, oh, it's this person that is the problem. So God, strike them down, get rid of them. Help them not to be such an evil, wicked, dirty, nasty person to me. Or we think about this situation. God, would you, would you take care of that situation? That situation is really bothering me. It's really hindering me. It's hurting me. No, David says, you know what, God? You are sovereign over all things. And if you are sovereign over all things, that means that you're sovereign over this thing. And so I'm coming to you and asking you to do something different in this situation because God is sovereign. This is what Job said to his wife, right, when she said, curse God and die. What did he say? Shall we accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? Job says, I know this is from the hand of God, so I'm going to trust him in spite of it, because he's given me, he gives me good things, but he also gives adversity, and I can still trust him regardless. So again, in the second half, David cries out to the Lord as his only hope. He cries out in prayer to the God of his salvation, to the one who is his help. He cries out to him alone and pleads on the basis of his character that the Lord would hear and answer. He cries to the Lord for wisdom, acknowledging that, yes, he needs the Lord to hear his prayer, but he also needs to hear from the Lord to know how to respond. And he cries out to the Lord for deliverance, looking to the Lord as his only hope, the one who alone is sovereign over all things, both the good and adversity that we face in life. In verse 13, we end where we began the psalm with a confession of his confidence in the Lord. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is the height of confidence for the believer. He's not talking about the hope that we have in the Lord in the future. He's talking about today. He trusts God so implicitly, so extensively that he says, you know what? I'm praying for this and I trust that God will do it. And we can have that same confidence. As long as we're not looking at God as a genie, but we're looking at him as the sovereign, right? We're not coming to God in prayer and saying, God, you need to do this for me. We're saying, God, this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm praying for. This is what I desire to see. That's okay to pray. That is good to pray, to bear your heart before God and to express your desire to him. But we're trusting him in the midst of that to do what he sees fit. As the sovereign. On well, the last verse, he commends the Lord as the hope of his people, where he says, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Again, our faith is lived in community. This very personal psalm, this very personal confession of confidence is not complete without a clear exhortation to those who would hear the psalm. And that's what this is. David knows. As a prophet, I would say, he knows that this is going to be used not just for him. This is not just for his own personal benefit. He may be here trying to encourage himself in the Lord, but I think he's also thinking about God's people by way of encouragement. That this is how we ultimately apply these truths. That God is our help, that he is our hope. Therefore, what? Therefore, wait for the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Be strong. Take courage. Wait on the Lord. One author said, if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then the future is your friend and you have nothing to fear. We all go through a lot in our life. The message of this psalm is one that we ought to take with us daily. Let your heart take courage, knowing that all of these things are true of the Lord. He is our light. He is our salvation. No matter the kind of adversity, do not hope in understanding your pain better. Do not hope in understanding people better. Do not hope in relief, but hope in the Lord. Look to him. He is your help. He is your salvation. No matter what you've experienced this week or what you may experience today, beloved, I would similarly encourage you. Wait on the Lord. Be strong. Take courage. Encourage one another in the same way. Wait on the Lord. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. Your word, which encourages us. Your word, which reminds us of your love and care for us. Thank you for who you are. That you are the hope of every believer. You are the help of every believer And therefore, we can be strong and take courage no matter what we face in this life. And as we wait on you to work for our good, we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.